couldn't help but think as we were singing hallelujah together <coughs> that in the King James Version or in the original text, the word hallelujah only appears four times in the entire Bible. Only in Revelations 19, verse 1, 3, 5, and 6. I want to tell you, it means praise Yahweh. <laughs> Glorify Him, praise Him, exalt Him, lift up His name. I think Pastor Gilbert was right on form this evening as he called us to honor Him, to worship Him, to magnify His name. Because He is worthy of all the praise and the honor and the glory that we can give Him. It's easy just to mouth that, but to be able to sing it from the depth of our beings, to exalt the reality of this God who is intricately involved in every one of our lives. He cares about us. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives. And if we will trust Him, if we will come to Him, if we will bring our requests to Him, that's some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Hopefully, we'll get to the... There are, you will remember that I'm talking to you about four imperative commands that are in Philippians 4. And it starts like this in verse 4. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is any praise, think on these things. Those things that you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now that's just a few verses, but there is a whole lot involved in those few verses. I couldn't help but think, I, I, I was struggling today saying, should I go to chapter 3 and talk to them about the importance of perseverance? Because in chapter 3, he starts right in the beginning saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I mean, that's the theme throughout. By the way, what is the golden text? The most important text in Philippians, the golden text. Chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But I know that most of us know that text, but what does he mean? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Is he looking for death? Is he anxious to die? No, no, no. What he is trying to tell us is that he has gotten to that place where the very existence of his life, everything that he is, is Christ. It is Christ that lives within him. It's Christ that enables him. It's Christ that motivates him. It is Christ who is everything that is the driving feature and the reality of his life. And so to die is not to die in the terms that we think, but in reality is to be finally consumed in the reality that is Christ. You know, our biggest problem is we struggle to die to ourselves. We don't like death. Especially we North Americans. Oh man. I'll tell you. We know how to get tummy tucks and facelifts and you name it. I mean we, we are involved in it. We see these beauties walking out on the television screen on the stages. And they've got Botox lips and you name it. I mean what are we doing? We're trying somehow to propagate and to have extra time. We want to find the fountain of youth. But don't we know that if you've got Christ, you have eternity 
within you. Do you know, not understand, listen. I want you to know that there is nothing that God cannot accomplish in you or through you if you will trust Him. Our problem is our limitations are in our own perceptions and our own mind. We are afraid because we think it's up to us what is going to be accomplished. It's ridiculous. We can't do anything. God doesn't call where He doesn't anoint and empower and give us the ability to fulfill. I want you to know He can be relied upon. When Paul says, for me to live is Christ, that holy epistle, all four chapters, it's, uh, you know, he talks about being in Christ, in Christ Jesus, 38 times in those few verses. 51 times he includes the word Lord. Talking about the reality, he wants us to know. It is Christ in us. It is us in Christ. And you will remember I shared with you that in Philippians, he never talks about Christ in us. He talks about us being in Christ. I can do all things through Christ. Through Christ. And remember the text that's in verse 13 of chapter 4 is set in the midst of financial difficulties and hardships. I know what it is to be exalted. I know what it is to be abased. I have learned that God is capable of taking care of me. I can stand fast in the Lord. I can agree in the Lord. Listen, I want you to know this whole text is set up about letting us know that life is not in our ability, but in the ability of He that has called us. And so because the time is running out and there's a thousand things I'd like to share, but listen how he starts and he says this. Rejoice in the Lord because to write the same things to you, to me, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concession, he says. What's he meaning? What's he talking about? Well, there are some heretics, legalists, that are teaching... A theology of Christ and something else for salvation. It's only Christ. I want you to know the legalists were talking about, and he uses the word concision. I want you to think about this for a minute. Most of us probably haven't even used the word concision in our vocabulary. At circumcision, certainly. And he is referring to something like circumcision. But he doesn't even want to use the correct word in the Greek to speak about circumcision. Because these guys are not circumcisers. They are mutilators of the flesh. Because they are legalists and they're doing things out of legal driving force religion. And so he uses the word the word for circumcision in the Greek is perikop, or perikope. But he uses the word parakope, which means these guys are nothing but mutilators of the flesh. They put confidence in the flesh. And it's that next verse that is amazing, verse 3. Because he uses the word parakope, and then in verse 3 he starts off by saying, but we are the perikope. We are the circumcised who worship God in the Spirit. Now, what does he say? He's not talking, you know. Some people would read that and think that he's meaning that we are Jews who have been circumcised. No, that's not what he means. Through circumcision, what does the text tell us? What does Romans tell us about what true circumcision is? Circumcision is not the outward uh, display of circumcision, but circumcision of the heart. And so he is saying, we are those who have been circumcised in the heart and we worship God in spirit. And you will remember it was Jesus himself in John chapter 4 that said that uh, you guys don't know what you're worshipping. Talking to the woman at the well at Sychar. And he says, but we do know because salvation is of the Jews. 
He says the day is coming when the true worshippers will worship God in spirit and in truth. We are the circumcision that worship God in the spirit. And I'll leave it there, the second portion. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus. That's the second point there in verse 3. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. I want to tell you something. You think about this from the very beginning of time. God had a plan. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before we were even a memory, before we were even a twinkling in our fathers or our mothers, eyes or minds, God had a plan. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. We celebrate the reality that He is in control of our lives. God has a purpose with Him. He's coming back one of these days in a wonderful way to receive us unto Himself. God is bringing together all things in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. The third point he says, and we have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Do you know, that is something we need to hear again and again. We need to remind ourselves that the flesh has given us nothing. We have no confidence in the flesh. It's not about religion. It's not about rituals. It's not about following certain precepts. It is all about relationship. The flesh has added nothing to our lives. But the spirit. Oh. And then he goes on to enumerate. He says, he says, look, we have no confidence in the flesh, but if anybody's bragging about any kind of uh, bragging rights they might have, I just want you to know, these guys who have confidence in the flesh, if they think they've got something to have confidence in, I more. And he's talking about the flesh. He's not trying to boast about any acquirements that he's made or anything that he has somehow accomplished. And then he talks, circumcised the eighth day. Oh, I want you to think about what that means. A true son of Israel in reality. Uh, listen, he wants them to know that he came, he wasn't just somehow thrust into this thing. It didn't happen because somebody had come after him later in his life. But from the very beginning, on the eighth day, he was circumcised. Following the requirements of the law. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And some of us will say, well, Benjamin was just a little bitty tribe anyway. Well, they are very, very important. Because the holy city, Jerusalem is right there in the area, the domain of the tribe of Benjamin. I want you to know they upheld David. They restored the kingdom. They stood in reality. And he was saying something marvelous. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. What, what does it mean to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews? Remember, he didn't grow up in Israel real. Although he was an Israeli in every sense of the word, he grew up in Europe. And so he wanted them to know that although he was brought up outside of the commonwealth, he was brought up in the culture that right from the very beginning he spoke both languages, the ancient language of Israel, both Hebrew and Aramaic. He wants him to know that he's paid his dues. And I want to tell you something. Now, he goes on with these few things. It's not necessary for us to look at them all. But it's what he finally says in verse 7. And I'm going to leave it there for the next time I get a chance because I want to look at the text that I shared with you from chapter 4. But what does he say? Those things that were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Those things that we had bragging rights in, those things that we feel somehow 
have made accomplishments for us that somehow define us. Them I have counted as loss. So many of us are so impressed with the accomplishments we've made. The churches we might have planted or revitalized or sermons we may have preached or how God has used us. What, what do we think? Is it anything that we've accomplished? No. The very things that I held as a gain that you hold on to, I have counted them as loss. In fact, the word that is translated county means I consider them as loss. But now, let's go back to chapter 4. I tell you that because you have to realize that the power, the effectiveness, the joy that flows. Listen, this is what he wants everybody to know. He's trying to tell them, listen, I want you to know there is joy in relationship to Christ. But if you add anything to a relationship with him, or if you take away from it, that joy will never be yours. Joy flows out of the reality that he has chosen us in spite of ourselves. Do you know that with many believers in the church, many Christians who have been in the church a long, long time, we need to be delivered from our good deeds. We're always saying, listen, you must repent of your bad deeds, of the bad things you've done. But I want to tell you, the church is full of individuals that are so filled with their own importance and cannot let go of all the good deeds that they have done. Thinking that God is somehow impressed because we did good things. I hate this illustration. It's rather crude, but I heard a man use it one time. He said, we are just like a kid who is about a year old and finally sits down on a little potty and has a bowel movement and then holds it up to God and say, look what I did, Lord. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's how we are. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses in verse 8. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done. The word is skubala in the Greek. That's right. He's talking about excrement. I count it but excrement. It's rubbish. That's the favorite word for me. It's a rubbish. Let me tell you. Anything that takes away from the glory and the majesty of the power of the Christ within us is skubala, rubbish. Let your moderation be known unto all men. That word moderation, epiakes, what an amazing word it is. What does he mean, let your moderation be known? He says, the word epiakes means your gentleness, your kindness, your long-suffering. Uh, in fact, the word actually means someone who in relationships does not demand his own rights. Oh, we fall flat on our faces because all the time we're shouting about our rights. I've got rights. Oh, we Americans are famous for it. We know. We've got rights. I mean, come on. But I mean, this word relates to those who in relationships do not demand their own rights. Let your moderation, your long-suffering, your graciousness, I think that's probably one of the best ways to describe it. But when I use all of these adjectives, and I still haven't really covered the meaning of the word epiakes. And he says we must let that moderation be known only to the believers in our church who agree with us. 
that what it says? You know, that's how we operate. We get along with the people that we like and that like us. And we feel part and parcel, even if there's some disagreement sometimes, you know. We sort of feel at home because we're with people that love us and care for us. But he says, let your moderation be known unto all men. Oh, wait a minute. Who does that include? The enemies that are persecuting you. The very ones that are undermining you. Those very teachers in the schools that are teaching our children that you don't have to be a man or a woman. You can think that you're just anything you like any day and we will affirm you in that because you have a right to choose. Never mind what God made you. I want you to know God says our moderation, <coughs> our graciousness, our kindness must be known to them. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard for me <coughs> to be gracious to people that will not listen to the truth and that refuse to believe and who have set their lives and their minds and their purpose to undermine the kingdom. They even... <coughs> I've had believers... Believers in the church who have cursed God because they were angry and they couldn't get their own way and because the pastor would not agree with him. Listen to me. If you're looking for a pastor that's going to agree with you, you're looking for a chaplain. And chaplains are wonderful people. They minister to us when we're sick and we've got problems and stuff, but they can't lead us anyway. But when you're looking for a man or a woman of God, a person to speak into our lives, they need to tell us the truth in love. They need to lead us to the next dimension. A relationship is so vitally important. We don't like it when they tell us that it's not okay to do what we have planned to do because it's not what God wants. <coughs> I had a, a woman come to visit me in my office and she said, uh, Pastor, I have uh, found a man that treats me nice and kind and I've decided I'm going to divorce my husband to live with him. Is it okay? Can I do it? I said, what? I said, are you mad? What are you talking about? All of us see other models and other nice ones and others that seem to be so pliable and we'd like to know them, but once you get to know them, you find out that they've got a bunch of quirks and problems as well. And besides that, the Word of God doesn't allow for it. Sorry, hon. Oh, she left my office mad that day. Because uh, you have to go home and work out the situation. We're supposed to work it through. What do you think? All marriages are easy? If you've had an easy marriage and you've been married for 50 years, your, your wife must be living in Timbuktu somewhere. <laughs> Dom, I know about an Italian man that took his wife over to Italy to visit with the family and left her there. And 25 years later, he said for her to come. That's crazy. Relationships, listen to me. We have to give and take. You can't demand your own rights. Oh, we try. I don't want to pretend here that I haven't tried. Of course I did. Let your moderation be known unto all men. But now, now this is in the imperative. He's not saying, listen, I want you to try to be gracious. It's an imperative command. But then the verse has a full stop and he adds a phrase. And that phrase is in the indicative. It's not imperative. And he says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near, some of the texts say. Now, what in the world does he mean? Now, by the way, 
that little phrase in the indicative qualifies that verse and the next two verses. In fact, the next four verses. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Number one, he probably means the Lord is in you and everywhere you go, he's present. You know, some of us don't realize that. We think that he's only present when we come to church on Sunday. But I want you to know, God has come and taken up residence by the power of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. He is present with us. I want you to know, no matter where we go, no matter, listen, even what we are thinking, He knows. You know, sometimes we think, if we can find a dark place, you know, where we can go lock ourselves up and nobody can see us, we... Ah, he sees, he's right there. The Lord is near. He is present. He probably means that. But secondly, there's another thing he might mean. He might mean the return or the coming back of our Lord because, by the way, those early believers in the early church believed the Lord was coming then. That's why Peter wrote and he said, there are many that say, look, people have been saying the Lord is coming and he still hasn't come. He's delaying his coming. And so they begin to live a rebellious life. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, I want you to know there won't be time to go and get oil. Have you ever thought about Matthew 25? And the virgins, five of them were foolish. You know, that, that's an amazing word, that word foolish. In the Greek. But I want to tell you this. A foolish person is a person that doesn't go all the way. Hoping that somehow if we sit on a fence, we might fall off on the right side. But I want you to know that chances are we'll fall off on the wrong side. You know what the Greek word for foolish is? Moron. It's moron in Greek culture, but a moron. A moron is a person that refuses to surrender to the Lord Jesus. I don't mean join Hosanna. I don't mean join Good News Club. You can join a hundred churches and still go to hell. There are a lot of people that think their church membership somehow is going to save them. Lord, I went to church regularly. Look at my Bible. I'm big at this. I carry it under my arm. And when I get a chance, I even read it a bit. Moron. I want you to know God wants us to be intimate with him. He is near, he's coming back. And when the trumpet sounds, it will be too late to run quickly and to find Pastor Steve to pray with me to be filled with the Holy Spirit anew. He's going to be too busy taking care of his own things. There's a third possibility. Maybe Paul means that the incarnation, because we are talking just 30, 40, 50 years after the incarnation, maybe 60, and he's saying the incarnation was just a few years ago. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Maybe that's what he means. The Lord is near. I want you to know we have got a great and wonderful God. And he is present in every situation. I don't care if you're in a gulag in Russia, in Siberia. God is there. And he knows how to take care of us. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for everything. It doesn't say that. Then why is it 
that so many believers have a ministry of anxiety. I mean, we can worry. We worry about the weather. We worry about the money. We worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. We, all the things Jesus told us not to do, we do them. We have a ministry of doing them. If you want to get the rest of the church involved, phone the prayer service. They will worry with you. Some of them will pray. Listen. Be anxious for nothing. Brother, the last time I looked in the Greek, nothing still means nothing. <laughs> Be anxious for nothing. Now you know that word anxious. Worry. Fearful. It's an amazing word. It's the word merimnon in the Greek. It's only used 19 times in the entire New Testament. And every time by Paul. And only four times is it used positively. Also by Paul. In uh, First and Second Corinthians. And in Philippians 2.20. When he talks about Timothy. And he says, Timothy will care for you. Now you're going to say, wait a minute. There are other cares in the New Testament. Yeah, but it's not Barimna. It's the word mellow. But, but I want you to know, Merimnan, you know, that word, one of the commentators was trying to express what the word Merimnan means. And he said, it's like a fox terrier who has gotten hold of a rag doll. And, and he tears it to smithereens. That's what anxiety does to us. It destroys our peace. It destroys our attitudes, our mindset. Let me tell you, when you're worrying, when you're fearful, when you're filled with anxiety, you cannot believe. Faith is nullified by fear and anxiety. It doesn't mean you don't have it, you can't practice it. I want to tell you something about faith. Faith is an amazing thing. God has given us the gift of faith, but we have to practice faith. It's like a muscle. You have to exercise it. When the text in Romans chapter 5 says in verse 3, we glory or we joy in our tribulation because tribulation worketh patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope does not disappoint. What is he saying to us? He is saying you have to practice your faith. Because when you believe and God comes through, you experience his deliverance. And the experience of deliverance builds character in our hearts. And character builds hope so that we can believe for the next time. Don't think for one minute that things are easy. When you became a Christian, you did not sign on for Sunday school. Uh, listen, being a Christian is not standing at the bus stop singing hallelujah songs until the bus comes to take us to heaven. That's how we behave. That's the kind of attitude we have. Fit it in when we can. We'll just sing along. Hey, when you signed on, you signed on. Listen, I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. You know, you may not even know him. Some of you do. If you haven't got his book, The Cost of Discipleship, I encourage you to buy it. It's not an easy read, but I promise you, it's rewarding. And he said this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote it while he was in prison in a Nazi German prison during the Second World War, waiting for death. And on the day of armistice, that miserable Hitler had him hung and killed him at five o'clock in the morning. But this is what he said. When Jesus Christ calls us, he calls us to come and die. You know what our problem is? We're not prepared to die. 
And the truth of the matter is this whole walk with God is life through death. You have to die to live. Die to yourself. Die to your own ideas and your concepts, your precepts, your perspective. God wants us. Believe. He doesn't want us to be anxious. He wants us by prayer and supplication. Now, here, notice what he says Be anxious for nothing. But what is the next two words? But in everything. Ooh. I asked Connie to check out what the word everything means, and she told me it means everything. <coughs> Everything, listen, in everything. Do you know, Pastor, I don't even buy a car before I first ask the Lord. And when I go to buy a car, I don't wrangle and fight and carry on. I walk around a few car lots and I see one I like. Uh, and I talk to him. And he says, yeah, that's okay. And then I say, how much should I pay? And then he tells me. At least I get a figure in my heart. Now, he's not sitting on my shoulder saying, Mike, that's the car, you know. But by the Spirit, he leads me. And then I say to Connie, I say, all right, here's the one I want for you, and what do you think? And she looks, and yeah, it's a nice car. I say, okay, let's go in. And then I ask him for the salesperson, and we sit down. And yeah, he starts his little tactics, and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going to sell me anything. I'm making you an offer. You take it or leave it. I'm out of here. So he says, oh, that's, I've never had a, anybody do that before. He says, I say, yes. My price for that car. See that one there? I'm going to give you 15,000 bucks for it. Ah, you must be mad. 15,000 in my car. Because my car, you only want to give me 500 bucks. You can keep it. I want 2,000 bucks. He says, oh, that's not going to work. I say, all right, hon, let's go. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Couple of hours, I walk out, I've got the car, off we go. I don't do anything without him because I'm too stupid. I don't know what's going on in that motor. Do you? I, I know some mechanical stuff, but I don't have the time to strip down the motor and have a look and see that the head gasket isn't blown uh, to check if there's some of the, uh, the uh, coolant wires that go to the radiator that have been cracked or burst because they had an accident and they don't tell you about it, you know, that kind of stuff. But he does! And the moment I look at the car and it's uh, had an accident or something, I can't see it in my heart. It's, I want you to know, in everything, in everything, don't live your life on the fringes. God wants you to come to him. Now listen, where do you think he's drawing from? You know, I've, I've always been amazed at the things that Peter says, or Paul, or James. So where do these guys get it from? They got it from Jesus. <laughs> he taught it. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but specifically Matthew 6. What did he say? Do not be anxious for what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, for your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of these things. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be take care of its own things. He said that. And in chapter 7, he said something amazing, and I believe Paul is pulling from that. It says this. Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. You know what's wrong with us? We are chicken. We think we can take care of it ourselves, especially 
bunch of affluent North Americans. We don't need to ask, but because we can go and buy it with our plastic. Did you know that the lender is servant to the no, no, the the sorry the borrower is servant to the lender. Every time you borrow money, every time you go and sign a contract, you have become a slave. Ask. Now, I want to tell you, I don't know if you know that in the Greek, they, they have what is called a continuous present tense. A continuous present tense. Very important to know this. In order to translate it, you have to add the little phrase, go on. Now, let me translate that scripture because it's in the continuous present tense. Ask and keep on. Ask and go on asking. That's what it says. Seek and go on seeking. Knock and go on knocking. You know we have been told, we have people that tell us that if you ask a second time, we're not displaying faith. I don't know if you had any sons. I had two. And when they wanted something, let's say a bicycle, they would ask me in the morning at the table, three times during the meal, after the meal, before they went to school, when I took them, when they got out the car, I said, Daddy, I want a bicycle. When they got out a bicycle, 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 until they nearly drove me mad. <laughs> and you know why? Because they knew if they keep asking, Daddy's going to give it to them. Jesus knew that too. That's why he said in Luke chapter 11, he said this, if you know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask Him? In everything, by prayer, and supplication, with, there's that preposition, oh, I like a preposition, with thanksgiving, Pastor, you're a real giver of thanks. Mm. This man, he thanks God every day, all day. Listen to me. With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Why? What does it mean, thanksgiving? It means to remember, to recall the many miraculous times that God has intervened for you. Do you know what our problem is? We have forgotten. We see a miracle taking place in church tonight. Woo! I wish I had a miracle in my life. You've had hundreds. But you've forgotten. I tell you, I can tell you so many stories. God has never failed. Why can I go with prayer and the supplication, with thanksgiving? Now, here's the thing. Thanksgiving. Why with thanksgiving? Because everything that we have is a gift. Everything. Our homes, our money, our life. Everything is a gift. And if we go in prayer, remembering all those gifts. I don't know about you, but people who have gifted me, they get special attention. If somebody thought about me and they came and they gifted me, whether the gift was small, whether it was large, I've always been grateful. And, uh, uh, but we forget that every day God gifts us. If we were more aware of it, we would be more ready to pray. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. My time is running out, so I'm going to move on. But I want to tell you, here's the, here's the end result. The peace of God. 
Now, you know, in Greek, the word for peace is eirene. But it doesn't have the same meaning as the Hebrew term shalom. Wholeness. Completion. I mean, shalom. What he is saying is the shalom of God. The peace that emanates from him. Now, what does Romans 5 verse 1 say? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know the peace of God that, is, that passes understanding, that is beyond our ability to even comprehend. It is beyond, listen, the peace of God is an amazing Reality in every believer's life. We don't always practice it. We don't always allow it to dominate. But the fact is that if we go to God, the peace of God. Now here's the thing. We'll keep. Now that is an amazing word. In the Greek, it, it actually means we'll stand God over. Another way to use it is, uh, it, it means it will, the peace of God will garrison your heart and your mind. And he's not talking about this little machine that pumps in here. He's not talking about just our thought processes, but it's our whole makeup. It is our way of perceiving, our way of responding. He is saying that God will post His peace as a garrison, as a God over our heart and our mind so that the intent of the enemy to disrupt our peace will not be allowed. He will keep the enemy, you know, the enemy's business. What's it, 2 Corinthians 10? He's all about bringing ideas that are not in obedience to Christ into our mind, thoughts, we undermine ourselves with thinking of all the terrible things that could happen. We build on the negative. Now, I'm not talking about positive thinking. Now, positive thinking is a good thing. I'm not against it. But it is not a biblical concept. Don't be cross with me. Norman Vincent Peale was a wonderful man, and everybody liked him and blew his trumpet, but he never taught the Bible. That's not biblical. Positive thinking. Positive thinking and faith are two totally different things. It's a good thing to have positive thoughts. But faith is what God wants us to have. Faith, the peace of God that passes all understanding, will stand God over our hearts and our minds. Will protect us. Well, we're not going to get to the fourth imperative. Maybe next time. It's a wonderful one. Oh, I tell you. But I'm going to close with that. I, I want you to know, listen to me. God has given us the most wonderful weapon that any human being could ever have. Prayer changes hearts. Prayer brings down enemies. We shouldn't be praying that God will destroy them. We're praying that God will have his way, that he will give victory. And he knows how to do it. You know, some of us want to say, Lord, just wait until he comes around the corner and let the car ride over him or something. <laughs> now, God's got his own way of doing things. If we start to pray in that negative way, he's never going to respond to that. He wants us to submit to him, to trust him. I've got a husband that's a hard head. Oh, God knows about hard heads. And he knows how to take care of them. I've got a wife. Oh, I tell you, it's better to live in a corner of a house than in a house with my wife. Uh, prayer can change the circumstance. I've got a son. He's as thick as a plank. Doesn't want to listen to anything. I want to knock him out every time he walks out the door because he walks out the door looking like an idiot. God knows him. And he knows how to change his heart. He took this wicked heart. Brought my mother and father misery. 
I was in and out of jail, all kinds of misery for years. And my mother and father, my mother believed in God. She was a devotional woman, but she wasn't sold out to Jesus. She wasn't a Christian, but she prayed for me. And God got hold of this wicked heart and turned it around. There is nothing impossible with God. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the wonderful joy of looking at your word together. Lord, you're amazing. Thank you that you've instructed us. Lord, I looked throughout the scripture and I don't know how many times you said to the children of Israel, if you will obey me and keep my commandments and my statutes, I will bless you. But if you refuse to obey and you do not keep my commandments, I will bring misery upon you. And Lord, we didn't listen. They didn't listen. We don't listen. Oh, God, help us. Lord, you have given us the solution. You have told us in imperative command what we are to do. We must rejoice. Even if the wheels are coming off, rejoice. We must be moderate, gentle, kind, gracious, long-suffering. We want to be tough guys, beat everybody up. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us prayer. That in everything we can pray and prayer changes circumstances and people. Thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, with thanksgiving, we want to honor you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of gathering together here at Hosanna. Thank you for the wonderful opportunities that you've afforded us in life. Thank you even for the snow that we did not enjoy. But we thank you, Lord, that it's in your plans and purposes to take care of North America and kill out all the germs and the hojas. Thank you, Lord. You are gracious, and we honor you. Now I pray, God, come and move in our hearts. Lord, there's some of us that are so stubborn and mule-headed. We swear we came from Missouri. But Lord, I pray that you would help us, convict us, save us anew, cleanse us, deliver us, set us free, so that we can be the sons and daughters of God. Come, Lord, and help us. Jesus' name, while every head is bowed, every eyes closed, just a few of us here tonight. If the Spirit of God has spoken to you, I can talk all night. I can't change anybody's heart or do anything to deliver you. But the Spirit of God is here and He wants to do something in your life. If you will trust Him, I promise you. Maybe there's a situation you're facing in your home. Maybe there's a sickness you're confronted with. Our God is a deliverer from diseases. Is there anybody tonight, while heads are bowed, eyes are closed, who will raise their hand and say, Brother Mike, see my hand. God has spoken to me. I want you. I want you. God bless you, dear. I see your hand. And that hand, God bless you. I see your hand. God bless you. Yes, and that one there. Yes, and that one. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Yes, I see that hand. That's fine. That's fine. Those, even those half-masked ones, he sees them. Hallelujah. Praise God. He sees our heart. Isn't that wonderful? He knows what's going on in our hearts. He wants to do something significant, special in our lives tonight. Listen, if it was only for one person tonight, it's a wonderful thing. The Bible says the angels in heaven rejoice for just one who responds to him. I know it's talking about lost people and you may not be lost but maybe you're lost in that you haven't surrendered all that you're not trusting him maybe you're lost because somehow you're angry because you feel that God has been unjust and unfair to you by the way God is not threatened by your anger and he is not uh, disillusioned he wants he knows what you are and who you are he wants you to come to Him. Trust Him. Is there anybody else? I'm going to pray. All right, Father, thank you so much. You've seen our hands tonight. 
Lord, we confess we need you desperately. Lord, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've seen our hands, Lord, that you would intervene in every one of our lives. You know what the circumstances are, what we need in our lives. You know the kind of work that only the Spirit can do in our lives. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to have your way, to have the freedom to do as you see fit. We invite you, Lord. Lord, if there are some of us that have been holding back, be merciful to us, Lord. Speak to our hearts and lives and perform a miracle tonight so that we might bring glory to your name in every way. Come and have your way, Lord, as we surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right, now we've got these altars, these beautiful altars right here. You know, an altar is a place of surrender. It's a place of communication. It's a place of fellowship. You can fellowship in your seat. But if you come to the altar when there are others in the altar, there's something that happens inside of us. You know, isn't it like that? God is like that. He says, that, you know, he didn't say to the widow, listen, what have you got in your house? I've got some oil. Okay, I'm multiplying it. Go and pick it up. Ah, you must go and collect vessels, as many as you can get. That was her act of faith. You see, when you walk up to this altar, that is your step, your act of faith. It's not because he dwells more up here than he does there. There's something about us in our surrender, in our submission, when we take that step and walk. Oh, but somebody will see me. So what? So what? Doesn't matter who sees us. Please, the altars are open. Now, I don't want you to come here because I'm not trying to browbeat you. I don't want you to come here just because I said so. I want you to come and respond to God. Come and seek his face and we'll pray with you. Maybe you've got something you need to be delivered of. Maybe you're a man and you've got real problems with pornography. If you don't, you're not a man. You don't all have to have problems, but men are like that. They struggle with those issues. God can set you free, he can deliver you. He wants to deliver you. Maybe you're struggling with uh, unforgiveness. Maybe you're mad at your dad or your mom. You can't let go of it. Your brother, your sister, somebody. God wants to help you to release and to forgive. You really do not have a choice. It is an imperative command that you forgive. Come. Let's gather in the altar. Maybe you've got a bad temper. You've got no discipline to control it. God is here by His power, by His Holy Spirit. He wants to give you control, discipline over your temper. He wants to do a work in your heart, in your life. Please. We have other prayers in the church. You're welcome. Pastor Mike's not the only one who can pray. Amen. Praise God. Is there something specific you want to pray for? Just Your love. 
broken from leaves than 99 And I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it Still you give yourself away And oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love to me.